This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. I'm here with uh, Guy Goodwin-Gill, who is uh, Acting Director of the Caldor Centre for International uh, Refugee Law at the University of New South Wales uh, in Sydney. And Guy, you have had, um, I think it's fair to say, the most distinguished career of any scholar of refugee law and practice in the business. Um, you've studied this uh, for a long time, you've written important books, leading articles, you worked for some time at UNHCR, you've been around the world, and, and I want to take a, a few minutes to talk with you really about where we are with the international refugee system. Um, you, you could talk at length if I give you the opportunity about the formation of the system in, in the 1950s, but the UN is now um, preparing a, a global compact on refugees, and I would love to hear your take on that. So maybe you could spend a few minutes on what you sort of think the promise of the system is, where it's fallen down, and then whether you think the, the global compact is really fit for purpose. Yeah. No, I think it's certainly changed a great deal since I worked with UNHCR, and that was back in from 1976 to 1988, and the world was quite a different place. It was still a rigidly divided world, and whether you came from a communist-dominated country or a communist country affected your chances, for example, of resettlement. And of course, when the Cold War came to an end, then that political basis for refugee protection and resettlement disappeared, and states were left with humanitarianism alone. And that seems not to have been enough. And I think that was, in many respects, a systemic, reflected a systemic weakness in the system. And I'm beginning increasingly to wonder whether when states adopted the language of persecution in the 40s and, and, and uh, 1950, um, when they focused on the refugee as a, a person who had a well-founded fear of persecution, they were, yes, drawing on their experience of the past couple of decades, but perhaps also making a political statement about the new refugees who were coming from communist countries. And the language of persecution was useful. It, was, it allowed us to, to criticize those countries as refugee-producing countries, as persecuting countries. And I think that got us into a bit of a mess uh, for some time because, as I said, we didn't actually exercise any differentiation. We just took refugees without regard to their individual circumstances simply because they had fled a communist country. Now, when the, the Cold War came to an end, as I said, humanitarianism was the only driver left, and it doesn't seem to be enough because we've had increasing numbers of problems. And they too reflect, I think, a deficiency in the system. The system at one level is quite a remarkable regime. It brings together states... 102 states now parties in the UNHCR Executive Committee, uh, a treaty base for obligations, the 51 Convention, the 67 Protocol, regional counterparts and the like, uh, a talk shop, an organization, UNHCR, which reports to the General Assembly. So the elements of a working regime are there, except in one important respect, and that goes to the issue of international cooperation and solving refugee problems. And states are always, it's difficult to translate that sort of duty into concrete action on the ground. And states have resisted firming it up. I mean, the, the Secretary General back in 1950 urged states to include in the 51 Convention an article under which they would agree to assist countries of first asylum, under which they would agree to accept a certain undefined number of refugees. And they said, no, we don't want to do that. And that's been the problem. It's the problem as it is also for Europe today. They've got the Dublin regulation, which organizes who, which country should determine a case but they haven't dealt with the then sharing responsibility aspect. It's, again, another incomplete regime. So the challenge today is to complete that regime in a way, and that's where the Refugee Compact, the Global Compact for Refugees, I think, comes in. 
And I, frankly, I was, I was delighted with the New York Declaration. I thought this was a remarkable document in many ways, to find states by consensus confirming the basic principles of refugee protection and setting out a, a roadmap, a, a, a vague map for improving the system, for improving the response framework and so forth. Um, so I, I, have, I have hopes that that actually will lead to a more predictable, more accountable, more effective system of, co of cooperation without going or without going to the trap of, of pretending to impose obligations on states. And increasingly as I look at the system, I think that knowing how resistant states are to obligations in this area, a sensitive area of community membership, admission, residence, expulsion, um, the, the, the substitute is, is, is mechanisms. Just getting states together to recognize the existence of a problem and to draw out the common interests through discussion, through perhaps negotiation, hopefully not prolonged, which will then remark, result, as it did in 1989 with the Comprehensive Plan of Action, in commitments, non-binding commitments, which nonetheless produced a result. So, for, for just um, to back up a second, what, what are some of the consequences of the failure of this Global responsibility sharing. What is it meant for refugees? Well, one of the consequences is what is somewhat glibly called the protracted refugee situation. Um, refugees, exodus, attracts a lot of attention when it first occurs, and then the tendency is for it to slip away from the headlines. And that's reflected also, as, as you know, I'm sure, actually, from your own experience, in the slipping away of, of contributions by states. It becomes less and less important on the humanitarian donations agenda. And refugees get forgotten. And as UNHCR, says there are at least seven million refugees in protracted refugee situations. They've been there at least five years with no solution, and no solution is on the horizon. And the, the other staggering estimate is that refugee situations these days, on average, are estimated to last up to 26 years. And I think that's a reflection also of the lack of, 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 a, of a mechanism which enables, what should we call it, the International Community of States to keep these issues on the agenda and to keep as much as they can momentum towards solutions. Now that's not to underestimate the political difficulties. There will always be political difficulties. Uh, we haven't solved the conflict in Syria. Uh, we're not very good at solving conflict, never have been. And even though the UN was set up precisely to do that, or one of the reasons they set up was to do that, uh, we haven't found the ways and means. I think, you know, with hindsight, one could always see situations in which perhaps a an intervention of the, of the right sort might have prevented catastrophe. Um, you know, could, could someone have in, in intervened in Sri Lanka, for example, when they were changing the language laws and encouraged them not to do that, perhaps? Could others have enabled Vietnam to adopt a different approach to social reconstruction than the one they adopted in 1977, um, and so avoided the exodus of, of, of Vietnamese, particularly those of Chinese ethnic origin? Could that have been done? We're not that good on, on early early anticipation and early action either. And I don't suppose we ever will be. Um, as someone said at our, our meeting yesterday, I mean, do we have to accept that conflict will always be with us? And I rather think it's quite likely it tends to have been that way. And the counterpart is, though, that I think we have to recognize, and states need to recognize, that therefore refugees will always be with us. And we need, we need very, to recognize that, and on the basis of that recognition, to move more promptly and effectively to solutions at an early stage, not to keep our fingers crossed thinking it'll all be over by Christmas, because it never is. So, um, a number of years ago, um, Jim Hathaway wrote uh, an article suggesting a, <coughs> excuse me, a, a, sort of a comprehensive plan of pre-commitments by states to take a certain number of refugees and 
and refugees would actually be moved not to their country of first choice, but to however this has been allocated around the world, uh, which would be one form of putting in place the kind of responsibility sharing uh, process you're talking about. I wonder what you what you think about that, the Hathaway proposal as it was stood yeah. the test of time. Is it time to bring that into the discussion now, or, or what other system might work? Well, I think, I mean, as, as Jim Hathaway himself mentioned, he was building on earlier work by Graham Madsen, who had proposed this sort of idea back in the 60s. Let's look at countries, look at their GDP, look at their landmass, look at their population, and, and come up with some sort of formula which would allow us to attribute mechanistically this number of refugees to that country, another number to another country. Um, but that goes against completely against the grain of what's of, of where, the way states act and react, and we saw that quite clearly in the in the European crisis that we had recently, when the European Commission attempted to develop a formula, precisely a more elaborate, more sophisticated formula for the allocation of refugees around well, you know, what we thought was uh, a union. And there, there was a lot of opposition, as we know, from certain member states. Um, and they had to look at having to look for alternative means. So I think these, these, these formulae I mean, are useful from one perspective. I think it's always useful to have the means, to have the measure by which to say that this state or that state or those, that group of states are not doing enough by comparison with others. Um, but as a formula for allocating responsibility, I think they're, they're, there's not to start, no starter. But it seems that we have a real conundrum here because you say that the central problem of the current refugee system is a failure of a responsibility sharing um, system. But to put that in place requires the kind of political will we don't seem to have in the world. So how do we how do we get? How I, I do think we move? yeah. I mean, again, I think you know, the political will is you know one of these will of the wisps, isn't it? I mean, um, where is this political will that we need? Well, we know it's lacking at the present time. And what we also know, I think, in the refugee migration context, is it's never going to be, it's never going to appear in the abstract. Um, we're never going to get states to commit in the absence of concrete circumstances to anything. Uh, for some, you know, the, the proverbial blank check for the future, they're not going to sign. But I think you can generate political will through um, through having mechanisms and processes in place. Um, I mean, during the context, during the course of the European crisis, I mean, one of the suggestions I made in three or four years ago was that this needed a standing conference and I think that something like that is, is going to come out of the, the global compact for refugees a, a mechanism which in effect puts states on notice that they have to be they have to front up and be there um, and, and and in that context I think in that forum you'll find the possibilities of, of developing that political will which may ideally lead to more solutions. So the two other aspects of the, of the global compact on refugees I'd like to briefly talk about. The, the first is the uh, the recognition of the role of development agencies, yeah. which of course yeah. is also an old idea that we can yeah. trace back many decades, but it seems to really have new uh, impetus and force. And I wonder what you think about that and what the area that's been viewed as primarily in the humanitarian sphere to now have the development guys coming up. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's a I think it's a very, I'm glad it's been recognised. It's a very important element, I think, there. And I think that one again, one of the problems of not including development in the equation, if you like, in the past has been that assumption that well, it's temporary. The the refugee phenomenon is temporary. The refugee crisis is temporary. Um, therefore, there's no developmental aspect to it. It's not going to last very long. And we know from experience now, surely, that that, that can't be counted on. So it makes sense in development planning to incorporate refugees and perhaps to use refugees to leverage development and to bring resources and capacity to states which are hosting refugees, acting on behalf of the international community. 
which will enable them not only better to host the refugees, but also better to look after their own people. There's been some criticism of this development turn, if you will, uh, because it's viewed, uh, the argument would be the following, that the vast majority of refugees are in the global south, the global north will now uh, send yeah. more money. Yeah. <coughs> development primarily is a way to keep refugees in the global south. How do you respond to so that? So is that a reason not to assist? You see, that's the other, I don't think it is. I mean, that may well be part of the global north's agenda. Um, but you know, if if it means that there's going to be more resources for refugees in, in less developed countries, then and how how can one seriously object to it? Of course, one would want to ensure that that other channels to asylum, other complementary pathways to protection, other ways of, of building the skill set of refugees were not ruled out either. I mean, one would want to see a truly comprehensive approach and a single focus approach. I think would would be objectable, um, certainly from an ethical basis. So you mentioned the word protection. Let's say a word about that. The, the Global Compact on Refugees now includes a provision that, uh, that, uh, that says something like the, the need for international protection arises when someone is outside their country um, would face risk if returned and can't be protected in their home state. Now this clearly goes uh, significantly beyond the, the definition of refugee in, in the convention. And I wonder what you think about that language in the compact and do you think we... And it's, I guess, a second question to that. Um, how do you think the international regime is responding and should respond to other kinds of forced mm. migrants beyond those that fit within the, the definition of the convention? I'm not too worried about that approach to protection in, uh, as it stands at the present time. Um, and I think you know, there is no, as it were, ultimately correct answer. It rather depends on what you're trying to determine. If you're trying to determine that someone is a refugee in that traditional refugee status determination process, then you do, I mean, the, the practice of states and, and, and tribunals is indeed to factor in the absence of protection or the lack of protection or weak protection in the home state as evidence that someone is a refugee. So that's, that's one approach. But from an international perspective, it is the protection need of those who are today in front of you. Um, the fact that they don't have access to a job or to documentation uh, or to anything that we would, or to education or, employ, uh, or for their kids and so forth. That's the protection need, it seems to me. And that's what for refugees, I mean, that's where it all began. I mean, refugees adrift in Europe in the 1920s were precisely in that situation. They had no documentation. They couldn't get into a library. They couldn't get a job. And they certainly couldn't travel. And Nansen saw his first mission as precisely remedying that very practical deficiency by getting states to agree to issue a certificate of identity to Russian refugees, which evolved into, effectively evolved into a Nansen passport. So that was a very practically focused uh, answer to a particular problem. Um, <clears throat> but today, protection has evolved beyond that. It's, it's, it's now very closely linked, as Nansen also wanted to link it, to uh, solutions to a new life and livelihood wherever it could be found. And that, I think, is, is something we have to we grasp, that that is, that is something we should work on from day one. It may be that the refugee will return tomorrow. Uh, it's unlikely. Um, in our experience, that that will be the case. But if he or she does go back tomorrow, then they or next week or in six months, and let them go back stronger, better qualified, better educated than they were when they arrived. Um, two groups that may be in need of international protection seem to be left out of the, the draft compact. First are internally displaced mm -hmm. people, and secondly, people who have been forced from their countries because of climate change or climate events. Um, do you think they should be included within the GCR? I think on the, on the latter, I think um, 
insofar as they're not included in the GCR, they will nonetheless be included in the, in the international agenda for protection of the future. I have no doubt about that. Because it is, going back to your, as it were, definitional description, it is the lack of protection once they're outside their country, which basically in, in, invokes the, the obligation of the international community to provide protection. So that will come about. States are resistant, I know that. I think in large measure because they cannot anticipate what the level of that displacement will be. But nonetheless, at the same time, we have the Nansen uh, agenda, the protection agenda, which 109 states basically gave a nod to. It was not a formal agreement, but they, they can see the problems coming down the line, and I think that, that's an indication of their implicit acceptance, I think, uh, that there might be a protection need coming up there. And that's what Jane McAdman and I advised uh, UNHCR just recently in a paper we prepared for them. And if there is a protection need, then that's, there's a role potentially for UNHCR to be, to be engaged. On IDPs, you've got the perennial question, the problem of sovereignty. Um, yes, we can recognize um, you know, from the high moral or political ground that the IDP's situation is effectively no different from that of the refugees, save that they haven't crossed an international frontier. But that's precisely the issue. When the refugee crosses an international frontier, he or she clearly becomes a, a matter of concern for international law. And that, that, that was, of course, a part of the genesis of the present system of refugee protection. But where they are still within their country, then the, the state claiming its territorial rights, its sovereign rights, can say it's no business of the international community. But I'm puzzled by that response, because as in human rights law, push that border. Well, that's where there is the tension. I mean, that's why we have the guiding principles on internal displacement. I mean, yeah. there is a tension there, and, that, and certainly sovereignty has been, uh, it's been shrunk a little under the impact of human rights, under the impact of the guiding principles. But still there is the problem for international law effectively to cross the border. And so while UNHCR may have a mandate for IDPs, that mandate is contingent on the consent of the state. And what it can do within the state with regard to internal displaced persons is also contingent upon on the consent of the state. And they and many states are still very insistent that, that UNHCR or any other UN agency do nothing but with it, but without its, its approval. Right. But that may be a practical problem of getting access, just as it would be in a refugee context, the UNHCR can't go into a, a state in a refugee context unless the state gets permission. Except that, except that UNHCR has a strong legal in, a claim to be able to do that. Whereas it has a, its, its claim in regard to the IDPs is much less sure. Right, but the question here is, should the Global Compact on Refugees include a provision that now says IDPs are persons of international concern? Yeah, I mean, I think that would, that would certainly be in line with many General Assembly resolutions, which have clearly recognized that there is an international interest there, while saying that the primary protection responsibility is that of the home state, as it were. Um, but but getting, getting to practical protection for IDPs is a challenge. Now, their non-inclusion, I think, is, is unfortunate for other reasons, is that we know that internal displacement is often the precursor to external displacement. So I think it would have been very useful to flag that, that possible eventuality and to signal the international community's legal interest in that, perhaps therefore strengthening its capacity to protect the IDP as well. Last question. If you were a legal advisor to a... To a to a country in a, in a foreign ministry, uh, would you recommend your government sign the GCR as it currently is drafted? Oh yes, um, but not, not just sign it, but commit to it. Um, commit to it in it as fully as possible, because this is a this is a matter of common interest. It's a, uh, the, refu the, the refugees are not matters which states acting alone can deal with. They need to cooperate with their, with other states in the in both in protection and in solutions. So I wouldn't hesitate to sign it. Guy, thanks so much for spending the time with us. Pleasure.